Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Vivian Lowe, board certified physician specializing in obesity medicine and internal medicine. But Vivian is so much more than that. She's a dancer, a choreographer, and an award winning fiction writer. And all of these aspects of Vivian inform her work in obesity medicine. We go into the depths of obesity, what the problem is that the body is trying to solve when somebody stores excess body fat. We discuss the different types of body fat, including visceral fat and what the problem is with it. The interaction between adipose tissue and the immune system. And also talk about Vivian's work in her obesity clinic when the 2020 pandemic hit and what she did when she discovered that her patients would be at higher risk of morbidity and mortality. Vivian is passionate, charming and so, so brilliant. I think you're really going to love this podcast and she was so gracious with her time and I cannot wait to get the opportunity to sit down and talk to her again because she is a wealth of information in all things metabolism, mitochondria and the immune system. So Dr. Lowe is board certified in obesity medicine and internal medicine. She graduated from Boston University School of Medicine and trained at Newton Wellesley Hospital where she also served as chief resident. Dr. Lowe worked at HMR and was a medical obesity specialist at Newton Wellesley Hospital's Centre for Weight Loss Surgery before starting her own practice. As I mentioned, her other achievements include choreography and writing. She was the recipient of the Bunting Radcliffe Fellowship in Fiction in 2006, a Guggenheim Fellow in Fiction in 2008, and shortlisted for the 2005 International IMPAC Award in Literature. Her diverse skills support her commitment to celebrating the full range of our humanity in an increasingly technological and disembodied world through art and the healing sciences. And you'll hear Vivian and I talk about this in her approach with her clients, which is, if I say unusual, I just mean that it really speaks to her holistic approach in all things sort of health and wellness. Dr. Lowe has a YouTube channel and a podcast with information on obesity and metabolism that is totally worth checking out. It's called VLMD Rounds, and we've got links to that in the show notes. Her website is www.vivianlowemd.com. Note, Vivian spells her name V-Y-V-Y-A-N-E, so it's not the traditional sort of spelling of Vivian as you might expect. Do go to the show notes and uh, check that out. And we've got her email address in the show notes also. Just before we crack on into the interview though, I'd just like to remind you the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. This increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. All right, team, please enjoy this conversation that I have with Dr. Vivian Lowe. Um, Vivian, I'm excited to be able to speak to you today about your work in metabolic health, your interest in uh, the immune system and the interplay between the two that you're sort of um, doing a bit of a deep dive into, and of course, your practice in general. When I was doing some sort of background reading on your actual achievements, just more broadly speaking, uh, like your interest in the arts, your work in your writing and the awards that you've won, um, it's such a varied background. So, you know, one of my first questions really is, you know, has this sort of overall interest impacted your practice as a doctor at all? Yeah, I think um, it certainly has. I think in the earlier part of my career, you know, I was hesitant to mix categories, if you will. And 
you know, at that time, I tried to keep strict sort of boundaries. Mm. Um, and, you know, I existed in different worlds. You know, I was in the arts world, in the writing world, maybe in the dance world, but not um, the same as I was in the medical world. And I kept all those categories distinct. And people who knew me from one area of my life really didn't know I did other things. I, I remember I had um, someone uh, in dance class come up to me and she said, I just, I went into the bookstore and I saw your book. I didn't know you wrote, but then in the bio, it said that I was a doctor. She said, I've known you for years. I didn't know you were a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, you know, but it was a lot of work to try to keep all those boundaries, you know, and at first I tried to use different variations of my name and so it just got <laughs> really overwhelming and took too much energy and time and then I just forgot about it but um in in the last 10 years I think I've just been more willing to bring in practices from the arts in dealing with my patients and I realized that um you know I'm after all dealing with human beings, right? Yeah, yeah. And that um, one way to not only um, help my patients, but really just to get into um, the core of their beliefs and what they're struggling with is to use the arts in some way. So using movement, storytelling, um, just the ability to just, you know, sit and spend time listening to the patient, which unfortunately we don't get a lot of these days absolutely and it sort of reminds me of you know when I'm thinking about just medicine in general often even the the different uh, the specialists uh, sort of categories they're siloed you know so we think about one part of the body like uh, like the brain and yeah. you've got neuroscientists and neurologists and then of course you've got orthopedic surgeons and and they're, they're specialists in their field yet of course it's all part of the human body and a lot of people talk about how this the silo sort of nature of this almost works against the overall big picture of actually trying to improve health and improve outcomes and, and things like that. Yeah, I think definitely in clinical practice, it works against that, right? Because now we have the fragmentation of the person and, you know, you go to see a specialist and they're only concerned about the brain or the kidney, um, you know, and they're not thinking about your heart and they're not thinking about that rash that you're struggling with on your skin. And that might be what's keeping you up at night, right? And so there are all these different aspects, um, but we don't see it as a whole. And then we sort of partition it off. And we start to, you know, see, I suppose, just organs or specific organ pathologies. And you're not seeing that this organism works as a whole, right? And, and um, also, you know, then you have to put that in context with the patient's social setting and their emotional and mental health. And, um, you know, a lot of times people say to me, well, you have a good memory, you remember all your patients. And it's because I know them as people. I know their stories. And it's very hard to forget stories, right? You know, one case of heart failure and another case of heart failure may have a lot of similarities and you can get confused and mixed up. And medications, you know, people are on more or less the same thing, so they all look the same. But it's very hard to forget and mix up stories. And once you know someone and you know their story and you've interacted with that, it's unforgettable. Yeah, for sure, Vivian. And I feel like, and that's service, right? It's sort of getting to know your your patient as, as you say, as a person, and then you're building that trust factor, which then almost enables you to do your job better because they're going to trust you and they're going to trust what you have to say and your recommendations for them. Absolutely. You get so much mileage out of that. I spend, I would say, you know, I always would say that uh, I could spend 90% of my time with the patient, just talking to them, interacting with them as a person, listening to the story. And then in the last 10% of the time that I have, probably less, 3% of the time that I have left, I can get everything I need yeah. to, you know, you know, I can, I can basically put together a plan because now I've listened to what's important to them and so forth. Right. But also it's easy now to get the patient to buy into the plan because, you know, I've, I've, I've built a connection with them. 
So I just, you know, use most of the time to build the connection. And then you just need a really a few minutes to get the work done. Right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Vivian, like I, as again, as I was sort of just doing some background reading, you mentioned on uh, another podcast or, or something that I was uh, looking into that you had a period of burnout post your sort of residency. And this sort of influenced your career path um, as it stands today. Do you want to chat to us a little bit about that and how you got into your sort of area of expertise? Yeah, um, it was right you know, after my residency, um, two years after, so I was a fresh graduate, really. And I had gotten to the point where, you know, you were so used to working those long hours and just taking on more cases and whatever was put in front of you, you just dealt with, right? And so I went into private practice with that, you know, mentality and that attitude. And I ended up um, in a huge practice, and I think everyone was burnt out. So I was the fresh person there, the lowest, you know, on the rank. And so I, I, I ended up getting dumped on, which is the terminology everybody uses. And so, you know, I walked in and I thought I had to do everything. So I ended up just getting everybody's patients. And, you know, um, I was in, in those days still seeing patients in the hospital and doing ICU rounding and you know, we had nursing home patients that I was responsible for as well. So it got to the point where I'd be still up at 2 a.m. trying to catch up with my rounds. And then the next morning I had the next, you know, caseload of patients to see, right? And this went on and I hung in there for a while just because I'd always thought I, I had to. This is how it is, right? And, and then I got to a point where I was really, you know, horribly burnt out. And, you know, I um, ended up, it was on vacation. It was a one, probably less than a week. And I was down at a beach in Florida somewhere. And I noticed, well, I, I, I didn't notice. Actually, I was tearing. I was in the hotel. We got into the hotel room. Um, I was with my ex-husband at the time. And he said, is something wrong? And I said, why? He said, well, you're crying. And I said, oh, it must be allergies. I never had allergies in my life. It was the first <laughs> I like, this is, and I realized he's right. I was like, oh, I think it's allergies. He's like, okay, you've never, all right. You know, and then I literally spent the whole week um, tearing and I couldn't connect with that, right? I would sit in on the beach in the shallow water and look out on the horizon, spent hours just staring out at the horizon. I thought, this is really strange. And I couldn't understand why I kept tearing, right? It took me a long time. And, you know, after that, very shortly after that, when I got back to work, I realized that something was terribly wrong and that I was very burnt out. And then the irony was that I'm a doctor and I had gotten to this point. I didn't know how to take care of myself. And this was very early in my career. So I realized you're not going to last. This how is, old were you, Vivian? Uh, in my 30s. Wow, yeah. And I just realized this is not good. You're not going to last and you're going to need to do something else. And I did something very drastic. I basically just, I, I, I resigned from the practice and it had a lot of consequences for me, but, um, you know, I just couldn't in good conscience see patients knowing that I couldn't even take care of myself. And I, I also realized that I wasn't in a good place to take care of anyone else because I was tired. I was, you know, I, I, I had to manage my own mental health. And so I basically ended up spending, you know, the next few years doing locums work. I worked, you know, part-time doing hospitalist work in the hospital. And also I started to cover for a surgeon. Um, I covered his clinics for him, which is how I eventually got into obesity medicine. But it was, you know, that first year, I call it my year of silence. I essentially just stopped 
talking to anyone really um, if it wasn't necessary. And I stopped listening to anything on the radio, nothing with lyrics, only instrumental. I didn't want to be around any conversation. I didn't, I just decided that whatever was going into my head, I would decide on it and curate it rather than just let it get into my head, right? Which is what happens a lot of times. Um, you, you know, it's it's amazing how many of your thoughts are not really your own thoughts. Right? And there are so many of them and they're competing and they're taking up yeah. space and it's distracting and it takes a lot of energy. Absolutely. So I spent a year really kind of sorting out my thoughts from other people's thoughts and stories and also not allowing things in that I I didn't find useful or, or meaningful. And so um, I think that was the first step back towards health. And then, you know, from, I always had a hard time fitting in the medical world. And this made it harder because, you know, I just couldn't go with the flow anymore and do the next thing and just step on that conveyor belt. Because it's a little bit of a conveyor belt. You go to med school, residency, and then if maybe a fellowship, and then, you know, you get into a practice and it, it's a conveyor belt. And I couldn't do that really. And I was very outside of, um, you know, that structure, which made it hard for me. I had very few I had very few friends in the medical world. I had tons of friends elsewhere, right? Um, but I always felt like that I didn't really belong in the medical world. Yeah. And did that, like, has that always, was that always the way? Was it to do with what was taught in the curriculum? Was it the way that, was it the structure that you were, um, that you didn't realize just what a toll it would take on you, but you weren't particularly comfortable in that? Like, what what was it that sort of made you feel like an outsider? I think, you know, um, I talked about it in the first episode of my podcast. I mentioned how, you know, I, I struggled that first year in medical school. And I had come from a very regimented education system because I grew up in Singapore, right? But then I ended up um, in Boston and... I ended up double majoring in biology and classics, and I, I had never done anything in the classics before. And I chose it because I had never; I, it was something I knew nothing about, and I wanted to spend the next four years at least maximizing my learning potential. So I was very fortunate because you know most classics departments in the world I think are quite tiny, and so I ended up having almost one-on-one -on -one tutorials with my professor. And, you know, I spent the next four years then just uh, in these rigorous reading courses with him. And he would really kind of pick on my thinking and my reading. And he, he really was the person who taught me how to think. So to go from that, you know, into med school, that first semester, it was just I realized it was just cram and get it in there, you know, and just get this information in there. And whether it makes sense or not, it doesn't matter. And it was really dependent on how good your memory is. I have a fairly good memory, but it was it was quite a shock um, to just sit there. And I felt like, wow, is this what we're going to do for the next few years? Right. And that was really hard um, because I, I felt after four years that I finally learned to think, right? And then I went into medical school and I thought, no, this is going backwards. And, <laughs> you know, you're, what are you going to do? You're going to spend the next four years and your brain is going to shrivel up. Um, so, yeah, so from that point on, I didn't, I realized I didn't quite fit in. And, and I didn't talk about this on the podcast, but actually what I ended up doing was I, I spent, that the next two years, the preclinical years, I was hardly in class. I traveled as much as I could. Wow. Uh, independently, I realized that, you know, you would just, you just had to memorize the stuff and get through the exams. I thought, what do I actually need? I need to pass those exams. All right. So I looked at the schedule, marked out the exam dates, and I thought, 
in the rest of the time, I don't have to be here. So I convinced my dissection group. I told them I would do the nastiest bits of dissection. And in exchange, I wouldn't be here, you know, so they would sign in for me. <laughs> and then, wow. Um, yeah. So then I, I, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, they had these courier services. And what they needed was someone, um, you know, to actually, they would have, let's say, you know, bags of documents and so forth, but they had to check it in under your name. They needed a physical person to check in with those bags, right? And then you could fly pretty much anywhere in the world for 50 bucks and hand luggage only. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And yeah. So I had a passport. I had I had my hand luggage at 50 bucks. And, um, you know, I said, I can do this. So I, ended up, I remember going in to the office one, the first time and they said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, A, Amster Amsterdam. Hey. <laughs> so my first trip was to Amsterdam pretty much spent you know I went to Istanbul I went to Hong Kong I just traveled as much as I could in the first two years and I would come right back I think one time it was pretty close I went into a kidney exam with my hand luggage running in I just made it on time amazing to do the exam and you know the rule was that I would travel I stayed in youth hostels but at night I would study and I didn't want to be in a strange place on my own outside anyway so I'd stay in the youth hostel and study at night and on the plane and the rest of the time during the day I could do whatever I would go to museums I would just you know just walk the streets of the city and get to know the city and so forth. So, so that's kind of how I got through the first two years. And by the time I went to the third year, which had all the clinical rotations, um, people asked me if I had transferred from another school. <laughs> no, nope. I've been here the whole time. So and now, when, now what, went, when was this actually? Like, was it um, like what year was this around about? Like, what period of time? Ah, well, <laughs> I'm going to keep that a secret. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> you've just given like, like, what an amazing opportunity that could have been had they had they're still, you know, I'm sure I they must have cracked down I'm on so, that. I'm so glad they, I'm always a little bit nervous talking about it because I'm like, I'm going to take back my degree. <laughs> Your medical really, license, yeah. That <laughs> was not there. I really was not there. I would send these postcards to my dissection group. <laughs> and uh, you know and they put you know a little pin on the um, the map oh she's over here she's in Istanbul you know and um so the first I, I even went to a recent reunion and I didn't know half the people and I would ask my friend Carmen do you know this person was this she's like you were the one that was never in class. <laughs> <laughs> so and um yeah but then 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 the next two years the clinical years I used as many of my electives as possible to do international electives of that I went to Brazil I went to Nepal and yeah amazing yeah so I, I basically thought okay I've got four years I've got to get through this and how am I going to do this um what are the requirements and how do I <laughs> kind of find my way through it and I feel like I've done that the whole time in my medical career so sometimes I feel I still feel like, okay, I'm, I'm quite outside um, and, and not, I don't know, it's not like I, I try to do, you know, that way. I just have found that I couldn't do it the regular way. Uh, yeah. I just and, couldn't. And Vivian, you've talked about how, you know, part of your, um, you know, so your interest in, in where you are now and, and one of your goals, I don't know that you called it a goal, but you started sort of taking people off medications when you started seeing them in clinic. And that, again, seems um, outside the box thinking rather than just checking that everything's sort of running smoothly according to sort of conventional sort of medicine, you were almost doing the opposite. So how did you sort of reach that point where you sort of thought, actually, the goal isn't to manage these medications, it's to actually improve health outcomes and, and things like that. Yeah, so interestingly, the person that I um, worked under for a bit, uh, he was a bariatric surgeon and he didn't want to do his clinics, he just wanted to do his surgery. So his thought was to just have me fill in for him in the clinics. And 
I was happy to do that. Um, and I realized very quickly that I could take people and I had to. As their metabolic health improved, I was taking them off insulin and their blood pressure medications and so forth. And the first time I did that, I, I remember going home and thinking, I can't believe, I mean, they never taught us how to do this, take people off medications, right? And so I thought, do, do I go half the dose? Do I, you know, with insulin, when, you know, I looked at their sugar logs, I'm, like, I'm just going to not, I'm not comfortable putting any insulin on board. So I just took them off. But there were other medications that, you know, you just sat there and thought, well, they never taught us how to do this. And do you just, do you just stop? Do you just wean them down? You know, and I kind of had to feel my way around that. And, it really made me think about everything that we learned in medical school was about, you know, starting medications, increasing doses, adding medications, but nobody had ever talked about taking someone off medications, right? That was never even considered as a possibility. And um, when I started doing that, I realized, oh, we have this backwards. Shouldn't this, shouldn't we be doing this most of the time? And then if we need to, maybe we'll use some medications. And, and maybe we can also think of medications as something we can use in the interim period while we're helping patients get better, right? I'm not, you know, against all medication, but I think that the way we're using it right now is just completely wrong and backwards, right? So just the thought of um, maybe that should be how we should be practicing, but it was very hard to get other people to see that yeah and, you know I think it still is yeah for sure and what about your interest in low carb and ketogenic diets like how did you sort of discover that as as an alternate alternative therapy for obesity and of course I want to talk to you about BMI and visceral fat and and everything like that but just that initial sort of diet therapy so I had a patient who came to me and she wanted to lose weight. And she said that her father had done, um, you know, the Atkins diet. And she said, do you think um, I could do that? Do you think it's safe? And I said, no, frankly, I don't know. Right. And, and then it bothered me. I thought, well, you know, here's my patient. And she's come to ask me for it. I don't know. And so I finally told her, I said, look, you know, I'll I'll read up as much as I can and I'll do it with you. So why don't I do it with you? And then, yeah. You know, I figured I don't know what she's gonna go through. I don't know what to expect. Well, I'll just try it out, you know, and let's see what happens. So it was it was kind of strange because of course we'd been taught, right? The whole low fat thing and and now, you know, you would you were supposed to be eating more fats and cutting out the carbs. So that was that was even hard to just think about. But I thought, okay, you know, can't be helping this person. You don't know anything about this. And so I put myself on it with her. And I told her, you know, look, you know, I'm not going to be losing weight, but I need to know what this is about and what you're feeling, what you're going through. And if there are any complications, <laughs> I need to know, right? Because she asked me, what do you think and what will happen? I said, I have no clue. So I decided I'll just try it. And I did. And that first weekend, you know, so I'd always had irritable bowel, you know, symptoms. And I just thought, I just have to live with this most of my life. And it's, it's just how I'm made. And by the end of the weekend, I, I didn't have any symptoms. And then it was really scary thinking about going back to how I used to eat because I, I you know, I, I don't want those symptoms. So it was really hard to now switch back. And what did you used to eat? So what, what kind of, what was the, um, the sort of difference? So I, you know, I think about food very much, unfortunately. And I, I ate um, whatever was convenient honestly. And then, you know, my sources of protein tended to be things like beans. And I was never a, a big meat eater my whole life, you know. And so whatever was there, whatever was convenient, I had really very bad 
eating habits, Mickey. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I got to the <laughs> point where I remember back to med school days, I had um, one of my uh, colleagues, another student, he used to be a, a chef. Swedish chef, really. And he actually, at one point, one night, bicycled all the way to my apartment and he made up this food. He cooked it, he put it in Ziploc bags and he rang the doorbell <laughs> and he said, just eat this, just eat this. It's unbearable watching you eat the way you do. And then he got in his bike and, and I thought, oh, okay. You know, because I would just get obsessed with one type of food. Yeah. And then I would just eat it all the time. And that would be the only thing I would eat for like six months. And then I would go, okay, I'm done. And then I'd find something else to be obsessed with. And if it didn't need to be cooked, it got on the list, right? Generally, I didn't like to cook very much. So I didn't really think very much of it. I mean, at one point, I had a six-month streak of creamed corn. I'm embarrassed to admit. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, then I had another... It, they these streaks would last about six months and I had another six month streak of of just um challah bread that I discovered here in America and I just thought oh this is good I like this and <laughs> eat a whole loaf and a meal and, and just be done with it I wouldn't even think about it right so interesting Vivian given your um you know what you were sort of doing at the time like with your dancing and with your med school and with your work and and everything that sort of laid on top of that is this particularly terrible diet like isn't isn't the human body amazing to actually get you yes, to that actually survive yes right? so you know I just was never I was I was quite a picky eater I think even as a child and then whatever was the most when I when I got to America and I needed to fend for myself and I didn't want to cook mm -hmm. I didn't really have a lot of opportunities to cook anyway so whatever was convenient and I just didn't think too much about it right yeah and so it got I just acquired a lot of bad habits as most people do when they come yes. here you know yes. so um, and then you get all these convenience foods. So for, you know, I loved cereal, cereal and milk, right? And I would, and rice milk too, because I was lactose intolerant. And so now that I think of it, you know, I probably lost some brain cells <laughs> for those years. You know? so. so, so you're Atkins, so that, 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 you know, it would have been relatively simple for you then to, to sort of make that decision to go on the Atkins diet. You're not sort of breaking up with any sort of food, you know, like, I, I say that because I talk to my clients about, you know, breaking up with, you know, the food, the comfort foods or whatever, but it doesn't sound like that would have been an issue for you. Um, oh, mangoes, mangoes, mangoes. Okay. I, could, yeah. I could eat, I could, I could eat a box of mangoes. I got mangoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just this chow down, right? So I could, I could go off on mangoes. Right? Okay. And yeah. that, that yeah. was the hard one. It's like, oh, and then, and then it got easier because I realized the mangoes here are very different from home and, they don't really smell like mangoes. And and then I thought, well, you know, if I want to eat a mango, then when I go back to Singapore, maybe I'll have a mango. Have a mango. But yeah, I don't, it's, you know, I don't dream of them like I used to. <laughs> so now how did your patient go on on the diet? So that was your first sort of instance of, of uh, seeing, I suppose, the Atkins diet in action. How did she feel? She did great. I mean, she lost weight. She was never hungry. Um, you know, and she felt it was the easiest diet she'd ever done. Yeah. Right. And, and I imagine at the time you were also doing a lot of background reading around as much it. as I could. Yeah. And um, again, you know, not we weren't taught anything in nutrition, so there wasn't anyone to ask. And if you did ask let's say a nutritionist that was always frowned upon, right? Atkins, a fad diet, you know, and fad rhymes with bad. So, <laughs> so you know, and I'd just be going, you know, it kind of works. And plus, I feel pretty good and I don't have those symptoms that I used to have, right? So it made a huge difference. And also I realized, you know, um, once I got to the U.S., I would, I struggled with my skin. Because in the tropics, I never had to worry, you know, with the humidity. But 
I just had really, really dry skin. But once I added the fats back in, that was, you know, a non-issue. But I struggled a lot. Yeah, I'd be flaking, you yeah, know, yeah. all the time. I thought, well, I don't know how to deal with this. You know, I've never had to worry about my skin. So, yeah. And so, Vivian, um, I just, uh, out of curiosity, is this how you eat now? Like a, a lower carb, higher fat approach? Is that, has it evolved over time? Yeah, it's it's pretty much what I eat now. I don't have a lot of variation in my diet simply because, again, that would be too much work. Um, and so uh, it's mostly protein, fat. Um, I, I like vegetables, so I do have some vegetables, but that's about it. I, I was never a huge, you know, I had very strange tastes in food, I, I must admit, but I didn't, I was never one of those people who loved junk food or had to have a dessert or anything like that. So I'm lucky that way because I just don't think about it. I go, okay, what are we eating? And where's the protein? <laughs> where's the fat? <laughs> Once that's settled, it doesn't almost doesn't really matter. Someone, one of my friends said, Vivian has no real love of food. <laughs> no, no real love. <laughs> you know what Okay, it's food. Okay. So Vivian, um, and then after that initial sort of exposure, if you like, did you then start implementing it with a lot more of your of your clients and did it just become part of your practice or how's that look now? Yeah, now, yes, definitely. But at that point in time, I was still hesitant and it was really hard to persuade people to, you know, to switch their diets. And um, you know, to go against the usual, you should be eating lots of, you know, plant-based foods and, you know, you know fruits and vegetables and, um, you know, cut down on fat and everything was low fat, low fat, low fat, right? So, um, and that was still what they were, you know, prescribing. And most times you go to your doctor, it would be a low fat diet, right? It would be the healthy diet. So, it was hard to convince people. And also, I almost felt like I had to say it in a whisper, you might want to try this. Yes. It, it works for some people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just because it, it was so against the grain, I think. And um, now, now, because I've seen the efficacy and how quickly it can reverse metabolic disease and be helpful for patients. So now I pretty much tell them, this is what we do. You know, and I say, look, don't, we can't pretend to be addressing your metabolic health if we're not willing to, you know, do this and, and take a deep look at, at the, our nutrients. Yeah. Amazing. And Vivian, how long have you been in practice for now? So now my, my own practice is eight years old now. And then before that, I was a consultant in the hospital for a few years and I was work. I was consulting for the bariatric surgeons as well, so um, I had a mixed caseload. I still do see a fair amount of post bariatric surgery patients, but I think the issue there is, you know, they do the surgery and then there's not a huge amount of follow up, and I certainly don't expect the surgeons to do the follow-up they're not trained to do that and they're they're aware of that so I get those referrals but it's then quite hard um because you know depending on the anatomy right sometimes satiety it's hard to get in the nutrients you need yeah. in some of these patients right if they're unable to take in huge amounts or a lot of times they would get stuck, you know, the food would get stuck, especially animal sources of protein, I find, unless you use lots of tricks to moisturize the food a lot. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a mixed population and it's challenging in that sense. But the other group of patients that I see are people with, of course, we have the standard um metabolic diseases right so we have the diabetes and the high blood pressure and the heart disease but um i also see a fair amount of people with autoimmune disease and some people who need support um as they're getting treatment for cancer 
for example, right? So more of these complex cases where, um, again, you know, finding the right nutritional strategies and supplementation for those patients. Um, I like that challenge. So dealing with a lot of people, with, let's say, with inflammatory bowel, so IBS, whether it's ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, which is even harder to deal with, right? Um, and using low-carb or even ketogenic strategies can be very, very helpful and give very quick re relief of symptoms. Um, and it's it's sad because I only get those patients after they've spent years seeing their GI person and so forth. And um, they've never really been given any nutritional advice, right? I mean, it's 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 a little strange that the GI specialist don't do much nutrition. Well, it's, it's <laughs> interesting. I know, it's yeah. Gut, right? I yeah. just thought, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I, I have many clients who, and I, I appreciate that it's such a busy, you know, as doctors, they're super busy doing what they do, um, but many still report that, that they hear that diet will play absolutely no role in their yeah. ability to get yeah. better, which I find really... Yeah. Like it's not that hard to just go to PubMed and even put in a search term related to your, you know, Crohn's and come up with a bunch of sort of actual random, even randomized controlled trials showing how efficacious diet can be. And Mickey, they're still skeptical, even when the patient goes back and their symptoms are better and, you know, they don't have any more bloody stool and so forth. Oh, your medication finally kicked in after three years. Sure. <laughs> right. I mean, like, okay. Yeah. That was a long lag period, right? But um, you know, even when the patient goes back and reports, oh my God, I don't have symptoms anymore. You know, my I, I'm not stewing five times a day. There's no blood or mucus, you know. Um, and their fecal calprotectin is low right? Never been low before. Even with that, they're skeptical and, you know, oh, it's a fluke. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not sure why the resistance, because honestly, like you said, if they're very busy, uh, I understand because they have procedures and so forth, but I would celebrate if there was something and that, you know, was helping a patient and maybe you, you don't have to be the one doing that kind of counseling, you can refer the patient out, right? But I would celebrate anything that would help the patient feel better. So I'm not sure why the resistance really. Mm. And Vivian, you mentioned sort of autoimmune cases and of course metabolic health, but what is the interplay between the two? Because I understand you're, you, you've got an interest sort of looking at the immune system and how it might impact our metabolic health or vice versa. Like, can you give us a good description or sort of explanation for how they might interact? Yeah. I mean, I'm going probably to be doing an episode or five on, on immunometabolism, right? But the immune system really responds to different metabolic programming. We see that in cancer research now. We're well aware that cancer cells have a way to reprogram, um, you know, the cells uh, metabolically change that program and therefore use energy and substrates in a different way, right? And so they're able to hijack the cell's own metabolic mechanisms to their own advantage. Immune cells do that as well. And now the interest in the research world is, you know, can we one up the cancer cells, for example, right? Uh, so all the interest in uh, metabolic reprogramming and, um, you know, trying to restrain or, or, you know, inhibit cancer cells that way. So that's one aspect of it. But I, you know, probably want to do an episode on 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 sickness behaviors as well because um you know there there's some research suggesting that different nutritional supplementations in the ICU may be beneficial in certain types of infections versus others right so depending on viral or bacterial for example that nutritional supplementation in this 
so far has been in animal models, but, you know, so parenteral, so giving IV uh, nutrients, right? Whether you supplement with glucose or, or not can make a life or death difference to those um, animal models. So I think there's this now interest in looking at nutrition that way so that we can be supporting our patients through a period of illness. And it's, again, strange to think that we don't think about our patients' nutrition, right? When they're hospitalized, that's when they're most catabolic. That's when they need the energy to heal. That's when they need the energy to fight their infections and so forth. If they have wounds, that's when they need the energy and nutrients to heal. But that almost never comes up when... Uh, you know, when, when you have a hospitalized patient, I have a patient whose family member was hospitalized and she had unfortunately um, some huge bed sores. And I asked about the nutritional supplementation and that was never even thought of. Yeah, interesting. For the patient, yeah. And this is related, but a complete tangent as well. Um, I think about COVID and I think about metabolic health and metabolic health outcomes. And here in New Zealand, at least, uh, nothing around metabolic, no, like no public sort of message around metabolic health or even vitamin vitamin D, which particularly, um, uh, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts, but as I understand it, like there's some pretty simple supplementation strategies could have been rolled out cost effectively to maybe support, um, you know, immune health or whatever. but. Um, there was no conversation. No, no. So, Mickey, we had um, in Massachusetts, which is where I practice, uh, somewhere in the middle of March of 2020, we had a lockdown situation, right? So I think it was the day or two days before the lockdown, I got all my patients together um, and I talked to them because I, I knew that people were had questions and they were scared and so forth. So I did as much research as I could, as I could, and I pulled all my patients together. We actually recorded it, um, so I know it's somewhere. So this is three years back now, almost right. <clears throat> and everything I said then still stands a hundred percent. This was with no—I mean, nobody really knew much of SARS-CoV-2, right? But I was like, well, let's see what. SARS-CoV-1 was like, and there was a lot of information um, because there had been outbreaks in Asia and then there was MERS in the Middle East, right? So based on that information, I did as much reading and then I came out and I thought about this and I, I got my patients together. Everything I said then still stands today three years later, okay? And then at that time with almost no research on this, on this specific um, virus. So at the time, uh, because I see a lot of patients with obesity, I said, nobody's leaving here without being topped up on your vitamin D. Nobody, nobody, right? And all my patients of color, I loaded them. Okay, I, I actually gave loading doses because it's harder. So everyone who is a, you know, a person of color, I'm like, come here, okay, we're gonna load you. Everyone got loaded, right? I have, again, primarily a population of patients with obesity. And I will tell you that I got all these phone calls, you know, oh, I feel so bad for you, all your patients, you're going to have a horrible time, you're going to manage your patients. And all these colleagues, you know, calling to just kind of, I think, wish me luck, right? Um, not one patient hospitalized, not one patient went to the emergency room. Uh, their family members got sick and, you know, one or two of their family mem members ended up in the ER. I didn't have one patient, right? I mean, it, I had a few that did catch COVID, but they, you know, I had a 76-year-old woman who had been diabetic, um, but we treated her and I loaded her and everything. And um, she caught COVID with her son her son was miserable and she was bored and she was doing aerobic videos at home to keep herself occupied, right? And I just thought, oh my God, this is so crazy. And um, 
again, every single thing. And I had also predicted all the tissues that you were going to see um, the virus in, right? And I said, okay, the brain is going to be very interesting, everybody, right? And, you know, now long COVID, oh, it has to do with changes in the brain. Blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, all news to you. Yeah. Oh, God. This is sad. And that's because, again, um, the the medical curriculum is so, so far behind, right? I mean, so when I realized, okay, all right, so this ACE protein, okay, there's, you know, when you, I realized the mechanism of infection for, for the, virus i immediately looked at um all the ras tissues the renin angiotensin tissues in the body which are brain gi tract heart right um kidneys right and lungs obviously i said okay those are going to be you know where you'll see the the disease express and i said the brain is going to be especially interesting because some of the ras systems in the brain are positive feedback loops okay so you know and you might think oh wow this must have been discovered post-covid no 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 all this brain rass's work uh was from 1972 oh interesting wow which it has never gotten into the medical curriculum because they're not teaching tissue rass they're still teaching systemic rass so you know something that gets in your bloodstream and there's, you know, it's converted in one, you know, through an enzyme in the kidney and, and in the lungs. And that's how they still teach it. But, you know, you have RAS systems in your pancreas, for example. And, you know, uh, there's, you know, my, it, it plays a huge role also in diabetes type 2, right? So none of this is is really being translated into the medical curriculum, and then clinical applications, right? So Vivian, with bearing that in mind, and I know we are three years down the track now and it's less about, or it feels at least here in New Zealand, there's less. it's less about uh, sort of being sick with COVID and actually more now about that sort of long COVID experience that people are having. Like, do you have any practical uh, tips or things that people should think about with regards to the prevention of long COVID or even uh, uh, sort of coming out of that? Like what would you tell your patients who are, who are experiencing it now? Obviously, um, we want to decrease the inflammatory burden in the body, right? So anything that, you know, will do that should be helpful. So prioritizing basic lifestyle choices of proper sleep and nutrition, that's all the baseline. And, uh, supplementation as well with, let's say, omega-3s, especially for the brain and so forth, I think would be really important. So I do do a fair amount of nutritional supplementation just because I think that our food um, sources are, are poor in a lot of nutrients, such as the minerals and so forth, vitamins as well. But I don't have a lab and I'm not in in the research world. Okay, but um, when I look at RAS systems, so, you know, first of all, where is RAS very prominently expressed in fat? So I immediately knew, I told my patients that day, I said, this, all of you are at the highest risk. Okay, and sure enough, very quickly, they found out that if you had obesity, you were at high risk. Right. So, um, because the entire RAS tissue expresses, um, I mean, the, the adipose tissue expresses RAS very, very strongly. And, you know, the virus is going to be able to stay there for a very long time. And so you'd want to decrease your uh, excess adipose burden. That's number one. In terms of medications, you know, if you think it through, uh, so we do have medications that address the renin angiotensin system like you know the ace inhibitors and the um arbs right the angiotensin receptor blockers like losartan valsartan that kind of stuff however those do not cross the brain blood brain barrier right so i would never use them oh we tried that it doesn't work well <laughs> it 
shouldn't. It's not going to get in the brain, but okay. Um, but the mineral corticoid antagonists, so like a clarinone, actually do cross the blood-brain barrier. That would be my choice if I looked at it. Um, and obviously, you probably want to do it as early as possible for long term, right? For uh, Because it's going to take a while. And, and completely safe as well? Yeah, so aplerinone and the older drug was spironolactone. And that's been used for a very long time. So they're very unsexy because there are no like expensive patents on them and things like <laughs> that, right? Yeah. So not very glamorous at all. Yeah. Um, they're, they've been used really mostly for, um, you know, coronary artery disease to prevent uh, remodeling of the heart. The main concern will be hyperkalemia. And um, that, you know, I just watch my patients. I check their electrolytes. I am very specific about what they can or cannot eat. So I make sure they don't have high, you know, potassium rich foods, you know, and then you, you check their electrolyte panel <clears throat> regularly. And I'm able to manage them quite well, really, just because we're so specific in our dietary recommendations, right? So we have a lot of control that way and um, get them to tolerate the, the medication. And then, you know, I do wean up. I don't start because just for managing the electrolytes, I start at lower doses. But if they can tolerate it, I go even higher, right? Um, and and I, I try to get to, you know, the standard dosing for a plerinone, um, yeah, most people do very well with that. And I've used it in other circumstances where it has been helpful, where I did want to address um, RAS overactivation because people don't realize that the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system is a huge generator. I'll just make it very um, general right now, but it's a huge uh, generator of reactive oxygen species, huge through NADPH oxidase, right? So it, you, it's, it's, it's a highly inflammatory system and you need to turn that down or turn that off as much as you can. Like I said, the receptor blockage is useful, but you have to get at certain tissues like the brain. I prefer the mineral corticoid antagonists. I mean, I think people are using, I mean, we were using it in heart failure and so forth. And now um, I've heard of them using it for atrial fibrillation to prevent remodeling of the heart. Certainly they've used it to prevent um, fibrosis in the kidney. So several, two years ago, I think the same year as COVID, yeah, in August of 2020, because I had said this to... Uh, um, a colleague who's a nephrologist, I said, I don't know why you guys don't use a mineral corticoid antagonist. And then a month later, there was a study that came out in New England Journal of Medicine uh, using finasterone, which mm, is <laughs> it's one of those. Yeah. 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 So I was like, said, oh my God, that's what you said. I said, oh, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> so <I'm> Viv <laughs> Vivian, um, now I, I, you know, we're um, almost out of time, but what I would, and I've literally asked you about two questions on my two pages, <laughs> but thank God you've got a podcast. So this is brilliant. Um, where you will clearly sharing lots of really valuable information, which people probably hasn't, haven't really even thought about or even thought to think about when it comes to metabolic disease or immune health or autoimmune. But I do like, I am curious. So if I'm thinking about obesity and, uh, uh, you know, excess body fat, and you're talking about the RAS system, is it, is, is this potentially one of the reasons why people who do carry excess body fat are much higher risk for certain conditions? And it's not merely the fact that they're carrying this adipose tissue. It's what else is actually, you know, present. Yeah, in, in, yeah. yeah with, with the, especially if they have concurrent hypertension, I have noted that if you don't get the visceral deposits of fat down, you know, um, you're not, it doesn't matter how much weight they lose. You really need to get the visceral deposits down because that's, you know, producing a lot of angiotensinogen and then eventually down the whole pathway uh, towards aldosterone. So, so uh, especially with, with, um, with hypertension, but certainly in other diseases as well. And then in, in 
obesity with excess fat as well, you will be activating the HIF pathway, the hypoxic uh, pathways that generate a lot of inflammation. So there's several pathways where where that's you know occurring. Yeah. Vivian, I've never really had a conversation like this before where we've thought about obesity or fat quite, and we've like, you've only mentioned like one or two different concepts. Like I imagine that your podcast will be such a wealth of information for, um, to sort of uncover a lot more of this sort of knowledge, which is difficult potentially to get your head around, but it just, it, when you sort of think about the big picture, it makes so much sense, actually. Yes, absolutely. And even fat, right? We think of fat as just this homogenous thing, fat, right? Where the fat is, is very important. Um, but obviously, we have brown fat, white fat, we have beige fat. But even within brown fat deposits, depending on where they are in the body, they can act very differently, right? So it's not just oh, it's brown fat. No, it's brown fat. And where is it? Right. Then there's a fat deposit that almost no one talks about, which is really important in metabolic regulation, which is bone marrow fat. The people think bones and they're very, very bored. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's where your immune cells are born. Right. And also a lot of metabolic regulation is in uh, bone and in bone marrow fat. So I, 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 they're just, all these different distinctions and it's just fat and muscle obviously but you know if we are if we're going to spend some time really understanding our bodies better i think we will i think we'll be moving towards a, a more preventive and also uh sort of reversal of disease type of model for for medicine because right now it's the pilot on model just keep piling on the medication right yeah yeah Vivian, amazing. I would love to chat to you another time and really sort of dive a little bit deeper into that. Um, Be happy to. Oh, thank you. Now, where can we find you? What is the name of your podcast? And um, yeah, let us know this. Yeah, it's VLMD Rounds. Yeah. Um, so that you can find on the usual podcast platforms. You can find it Brilliant. on YouTube as well. And my website is vivianloemd.com. So that's V-Y-V-Y-A-N-E-L-O-H-M-D.com. <laughs> Always have to spell it out. I know. That's um, great. Yeah. And actually I'm going to be talking about fat this next time. Yeah. The next episode. So. Well, that'll be amazing. Well, we will pop those in the show notes so people will find you. And I'm certainly going to be listening like that. I um I have so many questions and I'm completely out of time. Uh, well, Vivian, we can do this again. I'm happy to, and it's been a pleasure. I I don't get a chance, and it's always a thrill to me when people are interested, right? Because there's so much we can learn and and also think ahead of how we can use um, this information in clinical practices. Okay, not just so I not I just, just theoretically. Yes, not just theoretically and not just to make a drug because there might be other ways, right, with nutritional supplementation, with specific forms of exercise, with manipulation of the circadian rhythm, chronobiology. There are other ways that we can, and we're just so set in this box of, oh, yeah. drugs, no drugs, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So it's always a thrill to me to be able to have a conversation. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast, Mickey, was just to set the foundation, but then eventually be able to have, you know, these more interesting conversations aside from, well, bad cholesterol, good cholesterol. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Vivian, thank you so much. And um, I will, um, uh, I will put all of your contact details in the show notes and definitely reach out again and hook into VLMD rounds. Cannot wait to hear it. All right. Thank you so much, Mickey. Alrighty, I don't doubt that you would have enjoyed that and look like me, I am just, I got so ensconced in Vivian's work and have gone down the rabbit hole. She is amazing and what a brilliant mind. So um, definitely check out her podcast, VLMD Rounds, that you will be able to find, even just Google that actually, you'll find it easily enough. Next week on the podcast, I speak to Amy Bowler on the use of CGMs for athletes and where some of the challenges may lie and where are the opportunities. 
Until then though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, head to my website mickeywillardin.com, book a consultation or a call with me, or check out one of my meal plans. Alright team, you have a great week. See you next week.